I call it the gap theory of happiness. Uh, why are people unhappy? They're unhappy because there's a gap between what they have and what they want. Uh, so what they want is a, a notch higher than what they have. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Program Life Podcast, where we want our listeners, guests, and myself to learn something new. Every two weeks, I bring in a world-class expert on a topic related to productivity or mental health. And our guest on this episode today is William Irvin. Dr. Irvin is a professor of philosophy at Wright State University, the author of seven books, including The Stoic Challenge and A Guide to the Good Life. He has also written for The Wall Street Journal, Huffington Post, Time, and the BBC. In this episode, me and Dr. Irvin discuss about discovering your own philosophy of life, selfish desires, altruism, and also some really valuable stoic techniques and principles to follow in this era to help us lead a happier life. So real quick, if you want my key takeaways on this episode and the show notes, just head over to programlife.info. And you can also sign up for my exclusive email list. If it's your first time here on the podcast, please head over and click that subscribe or follow button right now on whichever platform you're using to listen to this so that you can be notified of all the great content that I provide you. And also just take your time to leave me a rating and review telling me what you like the most about this episode. You can also follow me on Instagram, yogeshprabhu2, Y-O-G-E-S-H-P-R-A-B-H-U-2, and Twitter, yogeshprabhu03. That's enough plug-in for me, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Okay, so um, Dr. Irvin, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show as you're an expert on Stoicism, and Stoicism is one of my favorite philosophies, and I've read multiple books about it, including yours, like um, A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art, Art of Stoic Joy. And it still surprises me that a couple of thousand years ago, the, Sto- the Stoics' advice are actually really useful and important to listen to in this day and age. And even people like you know PewDiePie, the most subscribed YouTuber, which the teens and people my age or older watch nowadays, we did a whole, he did a whole video about stoicism and he talks about it a lot on his streams when giving advice to people. So before I get into these questions um, that I have for you today, I would first like to thank you so much for coming on to the show, Dr. Irvin. Oh, thank you for the invitation. Yeah. So um, my first question for you is like, when it comes to stoicism, I found that um, the principles and techniques that came from it really worked for me. And it's important to note that stoicism is not really for everyone. And just to take a larger perspective of the world, um, it is important that we should find a philosophy that works specifically for us, like specifically for you. And you also point out in your book that if you don't find a philosophy of life, then our society or culture will give you one. And it's almost like a, a default philosophy that's built into our world and that is reinforced in our beliefs. So um, you call this enlightened um, hedonism. So maybe you could delve deeper into that and introduce us to the concept of finding your philosophy of life. Okay. Uh, well, you have one life to live. Uh, you need a game plan for living that life. Most people never take the time to uh, create a game plan for themselves. They simply look around at what other people are doing, and they assume that somebody somewhere has given this serious thought. And uh, as a result, uh, they just copy what other people are doing. Um, so what are other people doing? Um, other people are basically out for um, social acceptance, they would uh, absolutely love it if other people admired them. Uh, they would love it even better, uh, although they might not be willing to admit this, but if other people envied them. And, uh, you know, there was uh, a time, go back uh, 100,000 years, and your standing, social standing within uh, whatever tribe you were in, was a very important thing in determining whether you... Uh, 
lived or died, whether you ate or didn't eat, whether you got to mate or didn't mate, uh, and uh, your ancestors, your distant ancestors who cared about social standing, um, were very much uh, were the ones who were very interested in their social standing, worked hard to attain it, worked hard um, to protect it. Uh, the other thing, if you look at the people around you, you'll see that another thing that they're intensely interested in besides their social standing is um, uh, their affluence. Um, so, um, and the the interesting thing is they're actually not so much interested in affluence for its own sake, but because of the social standing they can acquire as a result of their affluence. Uh, so if you uh, make a whole bunch of money, what can you do? Oh, you can drive this uh, really expensive car that other people will admire and they'll envy you for it. You can buy a much bigger house than you need uh, for the same kind of reason. You can take uh, extravagant vacations and you can send all the people you know uh, uh, pictures and videos of showing how wonderfully uh, you're you're living. So, um, so uh, we all want at some basic level to be uh, rich and famous and, and, you know, you, you have to kind of uh, fill those out. Uh, so rich means relatively affluent. So more affluent than the people you deal with and famous doesn't necessarily mean world fame, but it means having high standing among the people you uh, routinely encounter. And of those two things, um, the uh, status is uh, more important because typically for you, the affluence is simply a device you use to acquire more status. So it's really all about status. Uh, Now, the interesting thing is that the world has changed since your ancestors formed this craving for status. And like I say, that was 100,000, 200,000, uh, even even deeper into years ago, even deeper than that into your past because when um, you were simply the primate uh, that uh, we and chimps share a common ancestor with that seven million years ago, that whole tribal uh, mentality and that status thing would have been there. So it's wired right into you. Uh, but the world has changed dramatically. I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, I have plenty to eat. In fact, the uh, problem is uh, not overeating. Uh, I, I have plenty of, uh, of uh, friends who uh, I don't feel threatened by. Uh, I, I have been able to successfully mate. I have two children. So all of those old things that used to be an issue are no longer an issue, but unfortunately, we continue to be wired with the same psychological wiring. And you mentioned in your opening remarks about you know how how it's sort of surprising when you think about it that a philosophy mm-hmm. like Stoicism could still be relevant uh, in uh, modern times. Uh, and I understand perfectly, and I would have said that myself until I, I did a deeper kind of research into the evolution of human psychology. And then you realize, well, the fact that we have the same wiring, the same psychologically psychological wiring as we did um, 2,000 years ago, and in fact that we did 20,000 and 200,000 years ago, we have the same wiring, there's another sense in which it shouldn't at all be surprising that a psychological strategy that worked uh, two millennia ago wouldn't continue to work uh, today because the psychological strategy is dealing basically with the same uh, human psychology. So most people are on autopilot. Uh, when they decide, when they're deciding what to do with their life, they just say, well, I'm going to be rich and famous. That's my goal. And I'm going to work hard to attain that because surely if I do get that goal, I will live happily ever after. And of course, it's one of the great human delusions. But I'm going to pause there and and uh, and I'd like to see where you want to take this conversation. Yeah, you you mentioned. Well, I agree with you that, like, in my belief, that Stoicism is a universal philosophy, and I say it has timeless advice. And well, you mentioned a lot um, onto um, the evolutionary standpoint. People, like, I I used to think that if, like, you know, thousands of years ago, like when when we were cavemen or anything like that, like we used to worry about like food, like starvation. We used to worry 
worry about survival. But now we're worrying less about those little things and um, we're worrying, we're thinking on a more broader perspective and we're, we have more broader thinking and, you know, we're more creative now. But on the other hand, like in this age of technology and distraction, uh, we can be trapped in rabbit holes of YouTube videos or like Instagram or any other like social media. So I would like to ask, why should someone take the time to self-reflect and read various philosophies and pick one out to adopt in their own life? And what benefits does this give us? Um, you've got only one life to live, and that life has X number of days, uh, and the value of X for most people is unknown. Uh, it could be uh, 20,000 more days of life you've got left. It could be that today is your last day, meaning this is it. And, um, you know, one of the things you could should consider, and a lot of people do consider of the dangers that come with simply being a human being who's alive. You know, there's danger of, of getting hit by a car. There's a danger of slipping on the ice. There's danger of getting some kind of disease. But lurking behind them all is a much greater danger, and that's the, the danger that you will mislive, that you will live the one life you have to live in a very thoughtless way. And as a result, you'll never achieve satisfaction. You'll never achieve happiness. You will put yourself on what's called the hedonic treadmill. Uh, and so many people are, are on that. You know, they, they live from day to day uh, with the belief. They, they think they have plans for the future. And they think that if only they can do, and then you fill in the blank, if only they can get that pay raise, if only they get that new house, whatever, that new car, if only they get that old car fixed, you know, it needs a new muffler, that they will somehow live happily uh, ever after. And then they get the thing that they worked so hard to get. And for a while, it feels really good. And you give it a day or two, and the good feeling goes away. They become ad adapted to whatever it is that they've acquired. This is called hedonic adaptation. And so then um, the sensible thing for them to do would be to say, you know, I'm not doing this right because I work so hard to get things, and yet I feel as dissatisfied after I get them as I did before. I'm on a treadmill. And in fact, they've given, uh, psychologists have given this a name. They call it the hedonic treadmill, where um, you keep pedaling, you keep walking, but you're no closer to the uh, object of your desire than you were before. If your object, uh, the object of your desire is a sense of, of satisfaction, is an appreciation of the life you happen to be living. And besides the metaphor of the uh, treadmill, the hedonic treadmill, there's another you can use. And that is, imagine a person who uh, is lost in the desert and uh, off there in the distance, he, sh he sees what he's sure is water. Uh, and he struggles, walks four miles through the hot sun across the desert sand to get to what looked like water, only to realize once he gets there that it's a mirage. And then, um, if, if uh, to continue the metaphor, uh, so uh, if, if he's a, a modern consumer, what he does is he stands up and looks for the horizon for another seeming pool of water and heads off uh, in, uh, in that direction as a result. But that's the interesting thing. If you don't carefully think through life and what is worth having in life, you will spend your entire life chasing mirages. You'll spend your entire life on the hedonic treadmill. Whatever you get, you'll take for granted in a very short period of time, and it'll therefore no longer play the role that it did when you first um, got it. Um, there's another way to think about this. Um, I call it the gap theory of happiness. Uh, why are people unhappy? They're unhappy because there's a gap between what they have and what they want. Uh, so what they want is a, a notch higher than what they have. And so they think quite sensibly, ah, well, that's my problem. That's why I'm unhappy, because this gap is present. And so what I need to do, the sensible, obvious thing for me to do is to work hard to fill the gap, to close the gap. So what I have to do is work hard to get that thing. 
that I want but don't have. Because once I do, the gap will be closed. What I want will be the same as what I have, and I can live happily ever after. Except the interesting thing is, once you fill the gap, a new gap will open. Again, there'll just be a new gap. And it might take you uh, uh, a few days, uh, might take you a few weeks to realize it. But suddenly you'll, you'll find in yourself this, this feeling of, you know, I don't have enough. I need more. And um, many thinkers in the past have uh, considered this gap theory. Uh, and this includes not only the Stoics, but it includes the Zen Buddhists and a number of other uh, thinkers. And um, they've realized, and and once you once you hear this, you know it's sort of like, well, yeah, this is obvious. But they realized that there's a second way to fill the gap that's much easier, and that is to reduce the level of what you want to the level of what you already have. In other words, learn how to want what you already have, because then you don't need to work hard to get it. And the other thing is, then you will you will take what you have, you'll treasure it, you'll embrace it, uh, you will uh, you will love the life you find yourself living. And uh, so many different people who who realize that conclusion have drawn different uh, different conclusions about how best to fill the gap. Uh, the Zen Buddhists, uh, you know, su- suggest meditation. Uh, the Stoics suggest. Um, they came up, they developed these really clever psychological strategies for closing the gap. Um, and, uh, but the interesting thing is most people don't even know that the gap can be closed in that way and uh, are as a result in real danger of misliving their life. Yeah. And I think that also relates to like the technique of negative visualization. And I find that this technique really works well as I have this quote by Marcus Aurelius in my daily journal, and it says, when you wake up in the morning, you tell yourself, the people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surely they are like this because they can't tell good from evil. And negative visualization just enables me to want or desire, you know, as you said, what I already have and helps me reframe the situation that I'm in in the moment and gives me like a higher sense of gratitude and well-being. So um, I would also like to delve into negative emotions. So a lot of people go through like really bad times. Um, You know, it can be anything like insults, humiliation or anything because life is unpredictable. And we tend to let out what the Stoics called uh, proto-passion, which is like an initial reaction and our natural instinct to act against these kind of events. And my question is, how would a Stoic think about a situation that has gone so wrong that you start to think negatively and you start to lose control of your negative emotions? And do you think there's a way to control our initial reactions towards these kind of events? Yeah, the... um um, Stoics came up with a psychological strategy. This is uh, what I describe in my most recent book on Stoicism, which is uh, titled The Stoic Challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I go into this particular uh, strategy in detail. But um, it's called The Stoic Test Strategy and what you do when life uh, sets you back in some way. And, you know, life is full of setbacks and a lot of them are are tiny little setbacks. You go to brush your teeth and you realize the toothpaste tube is empty. Well, that's a setback, a tiny one. (laughs) And then there are major setbacks. You're outside, you slip on some ice, you break your knee, uh, you know, and it turns out that that's the downward spiral, the beginning of the downward spiral that will put you in hospice care. You know, a long story, but such (laughs) things uh, happen. So um, they decided that, number one, uh, the Stoics, you just uh, read Marcus Aurelius's grumpiest uh, uh, (laughs) things that he did in his meditations. And it's easy to to read that or hear that and think of he must have been such a grumpy person. But you can actually think of that as a, a psychological strategy. If you go out into the world expecting incompetence, inspecting, expecting in, uh, ingratitude, 
um, then you're setting yourself up for a wonderful day because when it doesn't happen, and you know, sometimes you do encounter competent people, sometimes you do encounter grateful people, then it makes your day. It's like, boy, I was expecting nothing today. And, uh, and I've actually gotten uh, this positive, uh, this positive Im- impact. But anyway, another thing about the Stoics is a lot of people think that they're anti-emotion, and, and that simply is untrue. They're uh, opposed to negative emotions. They have nothing against positive emotions, and in fact, they have uh, specific strategies to help us increase the amount of delight we experience, to increase our sense of awe, to increase our experience of joy. So they're they're all for positive uh, emotions. And if you uh, actually read about the ancient Stoics as seen from the eyes of other people, other people thought of them as cheerful individuals Mm -hmm. because they were always looking on the bright side of everything. So the Stoics were opposed to negative emotions, emotions like anger and envy uh, and hatred and – regret and grief, negative emotions. You know, those are the ones that feel bad when you experience mm-hmm. them. And uh, setbacks uh, often can trigger those negative emotions. And so the whole uh, stoic test strategy is uh, on being set back, what you have to do is not suppress the negative emotions, but prevent them from arising at all. And the way you do that is you reframe this episode as a Stoic test. It's a a test by the Stoic gods to see what you're made of, to see whether you're capable of dealing with this in the proper fashion. Now, they aren't testing you because they're mad at you. (laughs) They're (laughs) testing you because they want you to thrive as a human being. So they're like a good coach who's going to make you train really hard for whatever upcoming competition there is. So you're going to do well in that competition. So they're on your side uh, and causing you these setbacks with your development in uh, mind. So when you're set back, uh, you can either do the, the default thing is to play the role of victim, you know, Oh, poor pitiful me. This bad thing happened to me and I really don't deserve it. And somebody should make it better. That's the default mode. And mm-hmm. the Stoics say that if you're fast enough, what you do is you reframe it in your head. Even if someone has, uh, has attacked you and verbally attacked you or otherwise attacked you, you reframe it in your head and you say, ah, this is the Stoic gods using this human being as a tool in their test of me. And in order to pass this test, what I have to do is find a way of dealing with the setback, uh, finding a workaround for the setback. That's step number one. And step number two is, and while I do that, I have to remain calm, cool, and collected. I have to not take it personally. I have to realize that usually when we're set back, when we experience a setback, the thing that hurts us the worst is not the setback itself. It's our reaction to the setback. Our emotional reaction is the cause to uh, most of whatever suffering we experience. So a minute ago, I mentioned, you know, going to brush your teeth and realizing that you're out of toothpaste. You know what? For some people, that's the start of a bad day. And they're going to go through the rest of that day in a black mood. And that's just self-inflicted damage. They're doing that to themselves. And instead, uh, if you think about it, when you realize that of, oh, oh, I'm being tested. Tiny little test. It's a quiz, though. Can I find a workaround and keep my calm while uh, I find that workaround? And uh, it's really interesting. It can transform um, the way you go through your days. Uh, And uh, when things don't work the way you plan, then it's a challenge. You actually find yourself looking forward to setbacks. I know that sounds Mm -hmm. really strange, uh, but you find yourself looking forward to them because – Uh, you know that they play an important role in training you for even bigger setbacks. Yeah, and I find myself definitely also kind of looking forward to it just to improve myself um, a bit more. And 
Now, just linking back to the idea of desires, um, there has been a lot of like psychological research on the idea of altruism and selfish motives. And a book called The Elephant in the Brain delves deep and talks about talks about um, how we all are intrinsically selfish at heart. And I wanted to know what the Stoic ideals would say about this kind of idea. And in your opinion, are we all selfish or are we altruistic? I think we have a capacity for both. Uh, going back to Marcus Aurelius uh, briefly, so we have this uh, this passage that you read: expect people to be churlish, to be uh, you know ungrateful, and and so on. Uh, but Marcus was also simultaneously a big believer that as a Stoic, we had a social duty to others. We have to realize that many of the people around us. Uh, because they've never given it any serious thought, are stumbling through life without a game plan. They're just going from minute to minute. And um, they d- they don't deserve our hatred. They don't even deserve for us to look down on them. They deserve our pity. And there are times when we can help them. Uh, and so this whole notion of being focused on other people and thinking in terms of what does that person need? What can I give that person that that person needs? Now, what the person needs might be different than what the person wants. Mm -hmm. Because if you go up to the person and say, so what is it that you want? And can I help you? And the person might say, yeah, I'd like a brand new car, you know, one that'll impress the friends. Well, okay, that's just because they're confused. But there are times when uh, you're in a situation where you can do something for another person. And this is the altruistic side that for you comes at virtually zero cost, but for them can make, can make their day. Uh, and I'm always amazed by the kind of asymmetry uh, between that of small things I can do that can potentially make a big difference in the lives of other people. You know, sometimes just, just talking to someone uh, and actually listening to what they say. You know, a lot of conversation is just two people either talking past each other or what they're doing is simply telling about the latest thing they bought or talking about what they want. But a real conversation, uh, you're like a sponge um, and you're, um, you're asking the person, how things things going? And, and listening to them and letting them, um, letting them tell you about their life. And, and uh, you'll find that people are, are quite, um, quite open to this, but they just don't expect it because most conversations uh, involve two people, neither of whom is listening to what the other says. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and helping other people in other ways. So uh, in my own writing as a Stoic, uh, I call it my outreach effort. Uh, I'm taking what I do in the classroom and trying to reach a much broader uh, audience. Uh, uh, I I get paid for doing it because books sell, but when I wrote A Guide to the Good Life, I imagined that it would sell mm, 10 copies, but I felt a stoic duty. You know, I said, oh, this is really neat stuff. And I have a duty as a stoic to share this with other people. And if they uh, can pick it up and find it useful, uh, that's absolutely wonderful. And if they can't, well, you know, uh, as a Stoic, what do I do? I do what I can with what I've got where I am, because that's the most you can ever do under any circumstances you're in. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, hey, I gave it my best shot. Oh, one more thing before we go on. The importance in your life, um, you know, most people want to be loved, and that's important. It's important that you be loved. But um, uh, just in terms of uh, your emotional aspect and of human growth, um, developing your ability to love can be much bigger than this need to be loved. And if you're in the ideal uh, situation in life, you're experiencing both of those. Um, but the ability to love something it gets you outside of yourself and, and lets you see something bigger right? There's a world outside of you and there's other people living other lives. And to be able to appreciate that is a wonderful thing. Yeah. And um, I also wanted to ask you, would would you like to explain one important lesson from any one of your books on stoicism 
that you would like to tell everyone who's listening right now on leading a happy life? Um, well, I, we could mention some of the uh, Stoic strategies uh, mm-hmm. for uh, – these are psychological strategies. So there are people uh, who fixate on Stoicism as a philosophy and uh, fixate on the kinds of philosophical arguments uh, that the Stoics gave for different points of view. Um, uh, I focus on their psychological insights because they were the preeminent psychologists of the mm-hmm. first century uh, AD. And this is the, the Roman Stoics in particular. We, we know less about the, the Greek Stoics, but the Roman Stoics in particular had this incredible insight into the way uh, humans uh, think and this incredible insight into how we can take those strange emotions that lurk within us and we can not only it isn't that we're suppressing them but we're preventing them from arising in the first place and when they do arise we're uh we're harnessing them we're actually using them for our own benefit uh so let me back up a little bit and touch on that and then i'll i'll answer Mm -hmm. uh, more directly the question you asked so in the stoic test strategy if someone wrongs you in some way, the uh, the instinctive thing is to uh, get angry. And if you let yourself get angry, then uh, it's going to make everything much worse. Uh, you're you're going to be miserable yourself. Uh, uh, it's going to the anger itself. The experience of anger is going to be vastly worse than whatever it was that they did to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so anger, it's very important when somebody does something wrong to you that you frame it very quickly and you frame it as a stoic test. And then the anger isn't triggered. And if it is, it's triggered as a kind of emotional support for you prevailing in this test, right? It's like the anger suddenly goes from just being angry to cheering you on. Well, let's show those gods who's in charge here. Let's show them, uh, who, uh, what sort of stuff you're, uh, you're made of. Mm-hmm. Um, but connected with the question you asked, so that's one of the Stoic strategies. And it can be um, life-altering. See, here's, here's the thing. When I became a Stoic, I considered becoming a Zen Buddhist and realized that Zen Buddhism has a very uh, – uh, it, it's got a high price of entry. You've got to start meditating and you've got to start meditating routinely, and you have to do it for an extended period of time. And then uh, uh, under some forms of, uh, of, uh, of Zen, you will have your moment of enlightenment. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen in 30 years. It might happen never. Um, so there's this huge investment of time and energy. I'm not talking mm-hmm. down Zen Buddhism. And I've been told by an authoritative source who, in fact, is a Zen Buddhist master that it's entirely compatible with uh, Stoicism. You can be both. So I'm not talking it down. But mm-hmm. uh, if somebody came to me and said, um, I want to adopt uh, – uh, philosophy of life, and I'm kind of torn between Zen Buddhism and Stoicism, I would answer, well, they're both worthwhile, but here's a thought for you. Uh, uh, give, um, give Stoicism a test drive first. Uh, it'll take you a few days in order to figure out uh, and apply some of the basic psychological strategies in your life. It's easy to do. You don't have to be a genius uh, to do it. You can uh, try them in your life and you'll get very quick feedback on whether they're making a difference or whether they aren't. Um, so among the, the you know, when people express an interest to me, one of the first things I do is I teach them negative visualization. Here goes, you know, in two minutes, you're going to learn what you need to know uh, about this. So here's how you do it. You, uh, you uh, just stop in whatever you're doing and you uh, just think about what your life would be like if something important to you were missing from your life. Uh, that something might be your job, might be your health, might be your children, might be your significant uh, other. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, things you could choose there. Um, just take a moment to reflect, just try to visualize the world without that thing. Try to visualize 
getting, uh, you know, the phone call from your boss saying, I'm sorry, we're going to have to do a bunch of layoffs. You're among them. So tomorrow you don't need to show up for work or, or getting the, the, the call from the police saying, are, you know, are you, they give your name because we've got some sad news for you. There has just been a car crash. You, you allow yourself to visualize that. Now, you don't fixate on that because that would be a recipe for an absolutely miserable existence. Mm -hmm. But you allow yourself to entertain that thought, to have that thought. Uh, Just a few seconds, that's all. Okay, back to life as usual. And what you'll find is that it changes your attitude toward uh toward a whole bunch of things. For instance, your job, you know, now that you've realized, you know, jobs are things that can just go away. They can just disappear. But here I am at my job. And isn't that a good thing? You start embracing what you've already got instead of taking it for granted. You know, and if you imagine somebody being in a car crash, you know, a friend or a child, uh, heaven forbid, uh, the next time you encounter that person, you could realize that you're actually appreciating their presence in your life before you just kind of took it for granted. Yeah, that's that person. And then you'll realize that they play this important role in your life and in your well-being. So uh, we talked about uh, closing gaps. And so one way is to take whatever life you find yourself living and realize you're lucky to be living that life because it could be much worse. You know, and uh, I encounter people who tell them that their life couldn't be any worse uh, because they're just wallowing in self-pity. And hey, give give me three minutes and I'll tell you 46 different ways your life could be worse. Uh, of <laughs> course, uh, usually they don't, they don't want to hear that. But that's one uh, beautiful technique uh, and, and I think remarkably effective technique, um, mm-hmm. negative visualization. Uh, another is what I call the last day, med- uh, last time meditation. And so what you do is you pause in the, in the day and whatever it is you're doing, realize that there will be a last time you do it and realize that this potentially could be the last time that you do the thing in question. Uh, and again, it sounds like a horribly depressing thing to do, uh, but you, you don't um, fixate on such thoughts, but you do allow yourself uh, to have them. Um, you're driving your car to go grocery shopping. Okay, last time meditation. There will be a last time you drive your car to go grocery shopping. I'm sorry if this comes as news to you. But there will be a last time for absolutely everything you do. And that's because as a human being, you're, you're mortal. Um, and then you start realizing, well, you know, and actually even the ability to drive a car, there will be a last time uh, I drive a car. Because uh, what can happen as you get old is the kids uh, take away the car from you. You know, they take away mm-hmm. the keys and say you're not safe. Or if the kids don't, the police do. Or, uh, or your doctor does. Uh, I had my doctor take away my keys, uh, for, uh, several months, uh, cause there was, uh, at a medical condition that, that made it, uh, possible for me to pass out behind the, the wheel. And, and, you know, once, once you realize that, then you realize, gosh, that, that I can drive, that I have the ability and follow that up, you know, and the, the fact that I have the ability to walk all the way to the garage to get in the car. Because there will be a time in your life, if you live long enough, when that goes away, when you're bedridden. And and again, it has the power to transform daily life from you just sort of um, complaining your way through your days of realizing that these are the good old days. Uh, You say, yeah, but there's lots of ways they could be better. Well, trust me, if you live long enough, you will look back on today and you will say, these are the good old days. Ah, yeah, I remember that time Yogesh was, uh, was interviewing me. And, you know, uh, I, I, my, my, I had enough mental wherewithal, I hope, uh, you know, that I could, I could do that. And, uh, and I had a functioning computer and you can go through, through everything. So these are the good old days. And if you think of them in those terms, it just transforms daily life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just going back to like the, um, 
uh, the, just going back to where you mentioned about the barriers of entry, almost like these fictional barriers of entry into stoicism, which I call it. And I like to think of it as that we're all human and no one can embody all these, you know, all these, all of these principles and all of these techniques all, um, all the time. And it's better to aim at following this philosophy and giving yourself room for failure. And the important thing is to always go back to your baseline of generally um, practicing the teachings of Stoicism and don't let one little misstep spiral out of control and make it into a bigger deal than it is. So um, just to wrap this episode up, um, like I always do at the end of each episode, I ask my guest what their opinion is on a Stoic quote. And so today's quote says, um, but putting things off is the biggest waste of life. It snatches away each day as it comes and denies us the present by, by promising the future. The greatest obstacle of living is expectancy, which hangs upon tomorrow and loses today. You're arranging what lies in fortune's control and abandoning what lies in your in yours. What are you looking at? To what goal are you straining? The whole future lies in uncertainty. You live immediately. Seneca. So what is your opinion on this quote and how does it apply to your life and the work that you do? Well, Seneca is my man. So at present of the uh, Roman Stoics, he... he uh, he is my favorite. He's also a complex uh, in, individual. And I've, I've kind of gone through, I've, I've played the field, so I've had uh, other of the Roman Stoics as my favorite, but um, he is uh, my favorite. Certainly, he played the biggest role in um, the Stoic Challenge uh, book. Um, okay, so some thoughts about that. Um, yeah, putting things off. Uh, here's, here's a thought for you. If you love someone, let them know it. It's so easy, so easy to do. And yet, you know, there's always tomorrow. But something can happen between now and tomorrow, and they should know it if that's the case. Um, and um, to praise other people, to thank other people, they're going to appreciate that. And yet, you know, you sort of think, well, I got more important things to do. As part of a research project uh, lately, I've been thinking about the concept of uh, of time well spent. And uh, uh, we live in the internet age, and it's very, very easy for you um, to waste uh, your time, to fritter away uh, your, your time. Uh, we talked about how you have X number of days uh, left to live. You have uh, X number of hours uh, left to spend doing things. And you can spend that time uh, wasting time and you could also spend that time uh, in a manner that it was worth spending. It was time well spent. So uh, imagine having a friend and, um, uh, you know, you, you were talking to them early in the morning and, and you said, so what do you got planned for today? And they said, oh, well, let's see, from 9 to 10 a.m., I'm going to watch cute kitty videos on YouTube right? Okay. And then what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to go on a long chain of uh, Google searches. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to ask, you know, how, how do you uh, make a lobster? How do you cook lobster? But I know how it works. And so by the end of an hour, I'm probably going to be reading about um, zebras, you know, their mating habits or something like that. You know, we would say that's a bizarre list of things to do. Because what you're doing is you're wasting time. And yet, look at your own life. I won't talk for your life, but I'll talk for my life. I know that uh, cute kitty videos are mildly addictive. And the people who are providing them, the YouTube people, know this. And their job, they make their living by keeping your attention. And the longer they can keep your eyes fixed to their screen, the more money they make. So uh, what you do is you go there expecting uh, to watch one and then it suggests another and you watch another and then it, it, it suggests another. And before you realize it, uh, an hour has been sucked out of your life. Was it time well spent? No, it was time wasted. And the same thing with Google searches. So I've uh, kind of gone on, a, on an internet diet here. Uh, I'm internet fasting. 
Uh, number one is I, and we can say a few things about this in a minute here, but, um, I avoid social media, uh, uh, like the plague. Let's see. I have a, a kind of a dormant, uh, uh, a Facebook account, but that's only because at some point in order to send uh, uh, a letter to the editor at a newspaper, it looked like I had to have a Facebook account, but it just sits there. Uh, I don't do Twitter. And I know probably a lot of your listeners uh, do these things. So so hear me out in, in a minute here. But now I know when I sit down and write, I have to uh, banish the internet. Uh, so it used to be that I would, uh, I would leave my email open and, uh, I would leave, um, you know, just in case I needed to do a Google search, I would leave, uh, Chrome on, you know, and, and so on. And now I know if I do that, uh, it'll just be constant state of distraction. I'll end up wasting a huge amount of time or in a moment of weakness, I'll decide to see a, a cute kitty video, right? Which will lead to another. So I'm, I'm very carefully controlling my environment now. And um, it's allowed me to focus much more clearly. But think about it in broader terms. If you live a life of time wasted instead of time well spent, you will waste the one life you have to live. If you fill your days with time well spent, you will end up having a life well spent, which should be one of your primary goals. And now a little bit of a side move here back to social media. Um, Social media, and we were talking about the social status, the role of social status in human psychology. Um, And problem with social media is it's all about social status. It's all about impressing other people. Uh, at, at least the way I understand it, and I'm 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 a novice here. I don't know, but I know people get friends, they get followers, they get likes, they get all, all of these uh, things going, and it gives you a metric. It tells you how many of them you've gotten in the last 24 hours, and how many of them you've got. And that rapidly becomes addictive. And so you start um, judging, you start planning your life around what will get me the most likes, what will get me uh, the most followers. And um, you know what? To have somebody, you should care about what other people think. For instance, I care very much about, and this is kind of um, retroactive, I care very much about what Seneca would think. You know, when I find myself in an interesting situation, uh, I ask myself, um, what would Seneca do? Uh, when I uh, find myself lying in bed, too lazy to get up, uh, I uh, ask, what would Marcus Aurelius do? And I, I know exactly what he would do because he, he said it. Is it. Was I put on earth to keep the blankets warm? No. <laughs> so get up and, and do what you're doing. So there's one thing to turn to wise individuals for advice on how you should live your life. But if you're using social media, there's a very good chance that you've turned over control of your life to a bunch of complete strangers. These people who claim to be your followers, who claim, uh, who, who give you the likes, you have not a clue in the world who they are. You do know that they're playing the social media game. And there's a good chance that uh, that's because they are on the wrong path in life. So you have one life to live. Who do you want to be in charge? Uh, so, uh, so again, I'm, I'm, uh, kind of nervous uh, about the role social media is playing not only in in politics and in in the news but also in in people's uh uh lives yeah and i think like one of the things that more so um like interested me is that um people think that nowadays it's actually easier for us to like finish work and do things since we have all of this technology and stuff but the fact is that before the kind of distractions, like just maybe um, uh, like when you were young, is that these uh, the type of distractions were just like comic books, board games, and it only wasted like 20 minutes to an hour maximum of our time. But uh, now we have something that it didn't exist like 30 years ago, and that's algorithmic entertainment, yes. which waits around like three hours minimum of our time and the difference is devastating and it's kind of hard to beat. And 
since it also takes our attention further away from what we want, what we actually want to do. Um, I think of it as there's two types of people that depart in the stage and they're the lazy people that fall into the abyss. And then they're the discipline, disciplined people that use willpower to get themselves out of the abyss and only spend like 30 minutes to an hour instead of three to four hours. And what people don't know is that there is an easier method that is stopping your mind from even going to log, yes. like going, like even going or logging into these entertainment sites. And how do we do this? And that what I call it is we tolerate boredom. And uh, so I wanted to ask also just one, one last question. Uh, what do you think on tolerating boredom? And do you think that's, that is the way? And do you think that links to any stoic principles? Um, you know, the whole notion of uh, if we let it, the, the internet demands our attention. So we have our phones set to have all sorts of signals to let us know, oh, you know, I just got a like. Uh, so it's a constant um, distraction. I am rarely bored. Uh, uh, you know, I, I should be. I'm uh, my wife. Well, I'm older. My wife and I have uh, we go out of the house rarely. We take walks. Um, we go get groceries. Uh, and so in theory, I should be incredibly bored. But because of the Internet. So we have one thing that's really absolutely wonderful. You know, the, the Internet is a tool. Uh, it's like um, any tool can be used for good purposes or bad purposes. An axe comes in really handy if you need to cut down a tree. Uh, it can also be used to commit mayhem. So it can go either way. Internet, the same thing. And so right now on the Internet, we have all these wonderful podcasts where you can hear intelligent people discussing in a thoughtful way some topic. And these are people that, that otherwise would never have any part in my life. And um, so I'm actually rarely bored, and the internet plays uh, a huge role in that. It's just a question of how you use it. And you can use it, um, you know, you, you just have all these options. You just got to pick the right uh, options. And, and one sort of closing word here, it's okay as a Stoic to have some fun. It's okay to waste some time. Uh, you are deep down, you are very human. Uh, so yes, I watch cute kitty videos. I love to fall asleep watching them because they have zero intellectual content. Um, but like anything in life, there's there's just got to be a balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, thank you so much, Dr. Irvin, for coming on to this show. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you for asking me.